0: You're listening to a message from Kaleo Phoenix, a church plant in downtown Phoenix that creates space for people to practice the ways of Jesus together. All right. Well, amen. I'm so excited to be here again. Um, And is this being recorded? Okay, because I want Pastor Aaron and Pastor Chris to know... Thank you. Oh my gosh, she's so cute. <laughs> I just want them to know that again, like I was, when I saw this ministry, shout out to my boy, Donnie, for introducing me to this ministry. But when I saw this, when I, you know, came to know them and this ministry, I was like, man, I just want to help. I was just like, how can we support Kaleo? How can we, you know, make sure that these pastors are taken care of? How can we make sure they don't quit? You know what I mean? Because doing this work in particular is taxing, okay? When you're speaking the truth and when you're, you know, challenging societal norms, present day norms and otherwise, it's hard and people turn their backs on you. So when I, you know, was, you know, praying that prayer, I just, again, would never have imagined that God would... Put me here, you know, and, and so just a shout out to them again for allowing me to do this. Um, amen for that. They, before I really know, before I knew what the, um, the pastors were going to give me as far as the scripture to preach on, God gave me a vision. I was just riding down the street any normal day with the kiddos in tow. Um, On this day, I was probably getting angry at some crazy driver on the road, because we live in West Phoenix, and they're real crazy out there. Um, But God was dealing with my heart in this moment, and I didn't think that what he pressed on me would kind of mesh with what we were, what I was given for tonight, but it actually surprisingly did. And so... Before I go into the scripture, I want to go into what God gave me. Um, it was a sort of vision while I was driving. And it was, I saw a foot on someone's neck. It was oppressive. It was violent. It was suffocating. It was seemingly Close to death, the foot was heavy as lead, and this man was suffering silently, as you could imagine. There was so much pressure placed on this man's neck and head that he was unable to open his jaw to form words or get in enough air to breathe sound to the words he wanted to scream out. It was a person who was laying on the ground and couldn't breathe because someone's foot was on his neck. It was repressive and it almost stole this person's breath in the worst way possible. I realized that this was a portrayal of so many things, of systemic oppression, police brutality, ethnic genocide, cultural erasure, Chattel slavery, gender inequality, racial discrimination, economic injustice, the erosion of the black and brown family, religious abuse, sexual abuse, spousal abuse, and the list unfortunately goes on. But this foot on this person's neck was just very symbolic, and I um, was given the grace to kind of flesh that out a little bit. This person who could hardly breathe, but was not yet dead. This person who could hardly speak, but was not quite mute. This person who was laying down, but was not quite asleep. And then of course, it brings me back to the footage, the video, many videos of the murder of George Floyd. The gruesome murder by police, a massive and heavy outpouring and mourning of our community happened after that. It was traumatic in a very real and personal way. Our people, some hundreds of miles away in other states and other countries across the globe, experience effects like PTSD, depression, deep, deep loss and sorrow. There were those around him, those within earshot who could hear George's final cries before he went unconscious and ultimately died an untimely death. George could be heard by onlook- onlookers pleading with police officers, calling out, sir, please officer, I can't breathe. They gonna kill me. I can't move, mama, mama, I can't. This happened as George's onlookers continually called out for help and now I want to read the scripture that was given me by pastors Aaron and Chris Matthew 15 21 through 28 and it reads like this Jesus went from there to the cities of Tyre and Sidon a woman came from the land of Canaan she cried out to Jesus and said take pity on me Lord son of David My daughter has a demon and is much troubled. But Jesus did not speak a word to her. His followers kept asking, saying, send her away. She keeps calling us. Ugh. He said, I was sent only to the Jewish people who are lost. Then she came and got down before Jesus and worshiped him. She said, Lord, help me. But he said, it is not right to take children's, to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the pieces that fall from the table of their owners. Jesus said to her, woman, you have much faith. You will have what you asked for. Her daughter was healed at that very moment. Does Jesus foreshadow the shattering and destruction of ethnic barriers in this scripture? Or does this woman expose the barriers of ethnicity and bias and change Jesus forever? Is this the woman that changed Jesus? Now, before we go into that question, I wanna pivot for just a moment about a parable that Jesus shared concerning the Good Samaritan in Luke 20, 10 and 25. I'm, I'm going to summarize here, but he was an expert of the law, a lawyer will say, stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must one do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? He answered love the lord with god with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said you have answered correctly do this and you will live. But the lawyer wanted to justify himself. So he said so who is my neighbor? As he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. He told him, look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for anything extra that was added to the bill. Jesus then asks, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The lawyer then said, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. There were 45 witnesses to George Floyd's murder that, I mean, officially came forward. It was the testimony of these onlookers that helped to shape the trial of Floyd's murderers Through witness testimony, we saw the trial work its way through to a guilty verdict of the man who stole Floyd's life and forever changed his family, our country, and our communities. Through the vision that God allowed me to see and through the story Jesus shares with us in Luke 10, I see the Good Samaritan and the onlookers in Minneapolis and see one thing. I realize One thing that I wanna share with all of us who are allies, with all of us who are bridge builders, with all of us who are martyrs for the truth, with all of us who are warriors who fight this battle, proximity, nearness, closeness, presence, accessibility, to the extent that they could onlookers of the crime unfolding before their eyes were pleading for help and pleading for the police to spare this man's life. I do, however, want to point out that had they not been in close proximity, they would not have been able to hear George's final pleas and cries. They would not have been able to hear his voice who was now voiceless in that court, courtroom. Do you think each of those onlookers were necessarily built for the courtroom? Do you think they all had measurable and extensive experience with testifying on behalf of anyone, be it in the courtroom or in the town hall meeting or at church or at their job, standing up for others who didn't have a voice? Do you think they had a kind of like a career of doing that? Or do you think, perhaps for most of them, they were pulled into a situation and in turn responded in kind and rose above maybe their natural inclinations and met a new version of themselves on that side of the road as they watched George Floyd's life pass? Or a new version of themselves in the courtroom as they stared down George Floyd's murderers while testifying? When I was reading Matthew fifteen twenty-one through 28, where Jesus was approached by the woman who needed her daughter healed, I, I wrestled with it. To be, to be very honest, I even wrestle with it right now. But Pastor Chris told me to be for, forthcoming with that. Um, just going back, I want to go back really quick to what we read He's he, verse 23, but Jesus did not speak a word to her after she cries out to Jesus and pleads with her and tells Jesus what she needs. She's crying out, Lord, son of David, take pity on me. My daughter has it, it has a demon and is much troubled. And Jesus ignored her, so much so, right? that she continues and she continues to cry out. So my question that I'm still grappling with is, was Jesus ignoring this woman? Was Jesus tired? Perhaps he was hot he was trying to relax for one small moment that people are always tugging at him. And here comes this woman, not even a Jewish woman, begging Jesus in the middle of her crisis Maybe with a high-pitched voice, that's pretty annoying to some people. Was Jesus not yet open to opening up the good news to those outside of the Jewish faith and culture? Was that moment perhaps something he planned for further down the road? Was he using this woman to rile up the disciples and then slap them with a rebellious notion about what it means to spread the good news? Pastor Aaron sent me an article by Wilda Gaffney, and this is what... Wilda kind of reflects on with this story. I have not heard a lot of reflection or speculation on Jesus's humanity beyond what is indicated by the holy texts. It seems we don't like to think of his humanity in terms that make us uncomfortable, particularly those aspects of ourselves, which we ourselves wrestle with, be that sexuality or our sexual orientation she goes on to say that Jesus was at the beach because it was hot, probably, and that he was most likely on a vacation. And here comes a woman, a Canaanite woman. Jesus was a first-century Palestinian Jewish man who was religiously observant and a product of his culture, including its biases. Israelite notions about Canaanites were no more generous than Roman ideas about the Jews. She was a Gentile like us and Jesus was not shy about his opinions of Gentiles earlier on in Matthew's Gospels. And quickly, I'm gonna go through some things that Jesus said. Matthew 5 and 47, if you greet only brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? That wasn't a compliment. Matthew 6, 7 through 8. When you're praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. Not a compliment. So basically, Jesus is saying, don't be like a Gentile. Don't greet like a Gentile. Don't pray like a Gentile. You can see in Jesus' language, God is their heavenly father, not ours, at least not yet. In, in this story, is this Jesus perhaps a little too human than what we've ever allowed him to be in our religious upbringing? This Jesus was 100% God and 100% man, but maybe some of us believe he was only 50% man because he couldn't have dealt with impatience, bias. Puberty, hormones, bills, Mondays, we think 30% man, 50% God. No, he was 100% man and 100% God. To be human is to be made in the image of God. We have a God-given capacity to love, to grow, to change, to open ourselves up and expand our beliefs and relinquish our biases. This woman who came up to Jesus during his vacation was the classic other, not alike, not part of his community, not part of his morals and standards and culture that he grew up in. She somehow finds Jesus and we don't know how long it took her to get to him. It could have taken hours, it could have taken days, but she finds him. And probably thinks to herself something like, if only I can ask the true God for help. I know he can't help but to say yes. He is God. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is perfect. So she cries out desperate for her daughter to receive the healing she needs to survive. And he ignores her. The God of the universe made flesh ignores this woman. When it is observed that he doesn't help her, perhaps the disciples take their cue from him because you see in the scripture, they urge Jesus to get rid of her because she keeps yelling after them. This woman who took time to seek out Jesus has not even been told to maybe come back after dinner, or maybe come back in a week when he holds another revival, but is completely ignored for a moment, right? If that were me, it might make me feel triggered being a woman during that period. Being a woman during that period, being ignored, silenced all the time, walking through life, And now the one person I thought that would hear me and have compassion is ignoring me. Not one disciple asked Jesus, why aren't you helping her? She's clearly in agony. She's clearly desperate. Jesus, go and help her. Can can you just help her so she stops yelling at us? And Jesus said what he said before all throughout Matthew's gospel. gospel. And, he, and, he, and he told this to the woman, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Maybe though, she was thinking, because after he even said those things, he, she didn't relent. She was quite relentless. The beach that they were on it was recently taken um, over by Jewish descendants. It was, it was a more recent thing, but this woman, she was, in, she was native to this land. So in my head, is she thinking in her head, you know, the beach you are at, although you and your Jesus, Jesus, uh, Jewish homies are more recent arrivals, is the land of my ancestors. And so if you call this land the land of Israel, then I must be part of that proclamation. Because my ancestors are, bu- are buried here too. And my ancestors were buried here before yours. It's almost like Mexicans in Nogales, right? The Nogales in Arizona. I mean, nearly all of Arizona was Mexico, indigenous. She might have thought, I am a part of this heritage as much as you are. This is my promise too. She is undeterred, she is unfettered, and thank God she was. She kneels at his feet, at the feet of one who at this point hasn't really acknowledged her presence at all. She begs him again, Lord, help me, this woman whose cultures and beliefs separate her so far from having faith in one savior. She's labeled an idolater. She worships multiple gods. He finally answers her and says, It isn't fair to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. This is a wrestling point for me. Jesus called this woman a what? A dog. And in Jesus's culture, they hated dogs. Dogs. They were looked at as unclean scavengers. I think in this article, the woman said she was talking to a a Jewish rabbi, and this Jewish rabbi said, I've never known any Jewish rabbi to own a dog. We hate dogs. This is where I, as a woman, may have again been really triggered by this statement. But let's see how this woman of faith responded. She says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the Lord's table. She uses that same derogatory word back at him. And she says, yes, but, but even the dogs still have access to the room. They still have access to sit under the table, might not be at it. And they still have access to consume whatever may fall from that table. I would ask, did this woman change Jesus in that moment? Is it impossible to think that this woman in that moment could have changed Jesus? Something happened in that moment where this woman showed what she was made of. She showed her grit. She showed her heart. She showed her persistence, her wit, her passion for her child. And Jesus, maybe he couldn't help but to respond in kind. He starts to sound like the Jesus we know and love today. He praises her faith. What did her faith, demonstrate to him in that moment that she believed he was God, that she believed he would do the right thing as a man who had a mom and loved his own mother and family, that she believed that there was more to this man Jesus than what his first impression suggested. He healed her daughter that very moment, And this is where we also see in this book, Jesus's language changes. Jesus left that place perhaps with a whole new understanding of his ministry. The closing words of this gospel where this story is shared says this, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Could we owe a debt of gratitude for this change? because of the relentless cries of this nameless woman. And to bring it back to proximity, if this woman had not gotten into Jesus's space and made things uncomfortable for him and for his disciples and the cherry on top being bowing down at his feet as a Syro-Phoenician woman, another, not Jewish, not Israeli, would the, would the gospel be quite what it is today? She had no one represented, representing her interests in the temple, in the town meetings, in the courts. She was voiceless. But when push came to shove, Jesus shows us that he was open to her and listened to her. Jesus did not shoo her away. Jesus did not kick her out. Jesus allowed himself to be open to this woman and her faith and her needs. Jesus may have held bias against people like this woman at some point, as probably expressed earlier in Matthew. But when she infringed on his vacation, yelling relentlessly, begging for healing, He did not send her away. He did not reject her. He might have ignored her, but he did not reject her. She fell to her knees, and he responded in kind by healing her daughter. It was an earnest exchange. It was proximity to the other, compassion for the other. Justice for the other. If those onlookers had not been in proximity to George Floyd, his murderers still might be on the streets of Minneapolis policing brown and black people unjustly, as it is common still to this day. And to the nature of what the good Samaritan could be, should be, and to what the woman in this story teaches us, and perhaps Jesus teaches us, and for sure Jesus teaches us, is to always be open, to lead with compassion, but to also be committed to learning and leading by serving, to listen first. In the Bible it says to be the voice for the voiceless. How can we do that though if we are not in proximity to the other how can we do that if we are not in proximity to one another how can we perceive what the voiceless needs if we are always the one leading conversations and talking over others can you imagine how difficult it might be for someone forced on the ground with someone's foot on their neck to tell you what they need. Someone who has suffered, and that's, so that's the symbology of it, right? But someone who has suffered through a lifetime of trauma, that's a foot on the neck. Someone who has suffered through oppression and neglect and robbery, that's a foot on the neck. Someone who has suffered through abuse, that is a foot on the neck. They might never have quite the words to articulate all that they've been through or how to solve their own problems, but it is up to us to be in proximity, to understand what their struggle is to the best of our ability so we can be part of the voice that can speak on their behalf with integrity because we've done our due diligence. Like the Good Samaritan, like Jesus, who walked with us, not above us, he walked with us. Jesus who stayed open And received what that woman challenged him to do. We stay open. We listen. Not to respond. But we listen to understand. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for your revelation. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this place being a place we can wrestle through this Wrestle through the word, do our due diligence to understand you. God, you've given us the desire to know you. God, you've given us the desire to seek you. So I pray that everyone here and represented would do their due diligence. They would honor the questions, they would honor the doubts, and they would study and they would pray. And God, that you would reveal yourself to them because they are leaning in towards you and your word. God, we pray that we would be the servant leaders that you've called us to be, that we would be the bridge builders that you've called us to be, the warriors that you've called us to be the voice for the voiceless that you've called us to be, the allies that you've called us to be, the martyrs that you've called us to be. God, we pray that you would continue to encourage us here at Kaleo to gird us up with your supernatural strength as we continue this, the good fight of faith. And in your name we pray. Amen. For more resources or information about Kaleo, please visit our website at kaleophx.com or follow us on social media. If this episode has been helpful to you, let us know or share it with someone you know.